This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hello and welcome to Midpoint. My guest today was a regular on our screens on major BBC news programmes, regularly in our living rooms telling us the big stories of the day. I'm working on huge state events, interviewing royals and major global celebrities and figures alike. And we got to see the lighter side of her when she appeared on Strictly Come Dancing. Then, after she'd had her two children in her 40s, she decided she wanted to retrain to become a psychologist specialising in children. She'd actually done her degree in psychology at Durham University, but of course to become a professional psychologist involved a lot more than that. She's done what many of us are not quite brave enough to do, and to do that really big career change in midlife. She's given Telly the elbow as her career. I'm sure we'll see her back on it because she will be brilliant at explaining what she's learning in documentaries. But for now, she's focusing on those people she's helping, those children that she is treating. She is passionate about what she does. And as you'll hear, she has no regrets. Kate Silverton, it is so lovely to have you on The Midpoint. How are you? I'm really well and it's lovely to be here. Lovely to see you as well. Yeah, and you are, for me, the kind of dream guest in many ways for Midpoint because when I started this whole thing two and a half years ago, I was really intrigued in people and guests who'd done something dramatically different in midlife and whether that was leaving a relationship, starting a new career, doing something completely out of their comfort zone. And you have gone from uh, the, the very established and in many ways safe kind of place of a, of a brilliant broadcasting career to becoming a therapist. So tell us all about that that dramatic change, because it sounds probably more dramatic than it is. I mean, does it feel like a natural organic process to you? Well, do you know, it's really interesting, just even hearing you say it, because it's actually been really recent that I've actually qualified. So it's lovely to hear you say it, because I feel like I've only just come up for air after what's been quite a long few years to qualify. So, yeah, where to begin? I think, I mean, for me, yeah, safety has never been an option. And I'm sure we're going to discuss that because I've always taken leaps. And I think that came from my dad. So we'll we'll hold him in mind because he's been a great influence. But in terms of the child therapy, my academic background was always in child psychology. And I'd always worked as a volunteer with a lot of children's mental health charities, Place to Be, the Anna Freud Centre, the NSPCC. And I actually did strictly with the intention of raising awareness around children's mental health. So it's been bubbling away, but that qualification, the actual change of career, and it is a change of career because I've stepped away from news and I'm now working in a primary school um, as a volunteer at the moment, um, uh, as a therapist, I'm working clinically with the young children in my care. So that part really is and that is quite a big move. So, yeah, it's really nice hearing you say it because it's this 
probably for the first time really acknowledging that 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 shift has taken place. Yeah, because you you did study psychology at Durham University, didn't you? Mm-hmm. So um, that's obviously it's always been of interest in your mind. And in terms of children's mental health, what was the moment where you thought this is so important to me and it, I'm so passionate about it that I don't want to just talk about it and be an advocate for charities. I want to actually get my sleeves rolled up and get involved in this. I've always been the type of person, as I'm sure you'll recognise, that when you do it, you want to get really in um, and do it on, on the ground. And I think becoming a mum was the point and understanding from my own therapeutic journey as well, um, just how important it is and how beneficial it can be and understanding you know when I was interviewing and I've been talking to neuroscientists and psychiatrists just with this interest in how we operate how our brains work how it influences our behavior and everything I was learning just made me think everyone needs to know this so there was this combination of wanting to do that work clinically and to be qualified to speak as a child therapist, as well as to also write about it, to share that wisdom uh, and everything that I'd learned with as many people as I could. So there's been this sort of two pronged approach, but the actual working clinically and, and it's just been so. So rewarding already that it is absolutely the right thing to have done. And I think it was, though, becoming a mum that probably tipped me over into wanting to do it sort of more. But becoming a mum is obviously the time when a lot of people then put things on the back burner in terms of changing big things in their life, because it's it's very hard to juggle being a mum, training, doing, you know, still rocking up on a Saturday night and reading the news to us, you know, so doing Strictly Come Dancing. Tell us about that, because people listening who may have something in their minds or hearts that's a burning desire to do something, but know it's going to be a bit of a slog to get there. Tell us about the juggle of studying and how that worked with kids, small kids as well. Yeah, there's the slog and then there's the juggle, isn't there? So I always say hard work works. So if you want something and you are thinking about it, that's the mantra. Hard work works. I get that from my dad. He was a London cabbie. He changed his career many times. He was a locksmith. He then trained as a hypnotherapist. So I've kind of got that influence from him. It's like if you want something enough, you go and you work hard for it. So that's always the mantra or whatever age we are. When we're juggling, um, I think it's accepting our limitations. So my children are now 10 and 8. And I have really, I started taking a backseat on news, not that people ever really knew it, because they kept saying, are you on breakfast? I was thinking, I haven't done that for a few years. But um, I started when I had children, I started working more and more and more part time. So I think sometimes it feels that we're, because we're in the public eye, we're actually I've been it's like turning this oil tanker sometimes with a career isn't it and you've got to do it quite slowly so I think it has taken me almost a decade to get to this point so it hasn't happened overnight and probably the last year has been most intense with the studying my husband actually said to me you feel like you're busier this year because I was studying and it's quite an intense course and qualifying than when I was in news so the last year has been quite intense but my children are now a little bit older but I'm so mindful and in fact I've just put my second book on hold because I thought how deeply ironic if I'm not looking after my kids when I'm you know talking about parenting and looking after so I think it's that 
the hard work works bit. If you if you're going to go for something and change your life, um, then I passionately believe that you can go for things. You follow your heart, follow your passion, but you've got to work for it. But also be mindful that we can't, you know, everything comes with time, but it it comes at the right time. And sometimes we can be a little bit impatient with it. And I've had to really learn that. And just with this particular journey, I have let it come as slowly as I could possibly manage because I didn't want to burn out. You've clearly also, you mentioned your husband there. You, it's got to be a kind of family decision, hasn't it, when somebody does something like this? You can't be fighting against somebody else wanting you to, you know, not make those changes. So he was obviously very, I'm saying obviously, was he very supportive? Yeah, very much so. We, we've Our marriage has been this lovely sort of ebb and flow. When we first got together, I was like the main breadwinner and then he set up his company and is now the main breadwinner. So he was the one that said to me, look actually go follow this passion do it now you know while you can so we're very much a team very much a sort of a team effort and it has been like that you sort of you make it work I think there's that lovely poem which is obviously attributed normally attributed to Goethe but I think it's William Murray the mountaineer and he talks about when you commit providence follows you and again, you know, with the theme of your podcast, I really believe in that. It's like if you're up on a mountain face and you're sort of you, you're sort of really tentative about something, you're more likely to fall than if you just go for it. And commit. providence seems to there's a net that seems to come in and and catch us. So I again, we do we make these decisions, my husband and I, in our lives. You know, it's with thought and care. But actually, at some point, you've just got to go for it. Also, because when you start to go for it and you commit, you'll find things. It seems like coincidence, but it never is, I don't think, that the energy that you then attract things that kind of make that work for you. So I think whatever it is that you're wanting to go for. And tell me about the satisfaction of, you know, you must have had moments, you know, whether it's recent or early on where, where something happened, whether it's the children you're working with, where you you need to be convinced that you're doing the right thing as well, don't you? You need to, a moment where you think this is absolutely the right decision. I think I've, I've never had a doubt, actually, just even from the first day on the course and in the therapy room, obviously, I won't break confidences, but but in the therapy room, it's like a magic that happens. And to see the healing, the repair, the the change and, and to have the feedback from parents, from teachers, from the child themselves, you know, just as I say, I had to be really careful not to break, but 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 just yes, it works. And it's a very, very special experience. And I feel really privileged to be doing it. I also feel that I'm in and where I'm meant to be. I really feel like I'm in my place. And you've arrived at that place now where in society, we're just facing a uh, a kind of tidal wave, aren't we, of problems and issues with um, children obviously coming through the pandemic, um, but also the kinds of childhoods that kids are having now compared to 20, 30 years ago, the things they've got to navigate, whether it's online, social media, you know, kind of just just having a digital device with them all the time, all those things, which I think, you know, generations to come will look back and it'll be like smoking almost. We'll turn around and say, I can't believe we let kids have those things with them. But you know, I know it's tough and I'm not being lectury, but it, it just it just feels like we are heading to a place in the future where people will look back and think we're a bit crazy having these kind of worlds for our kids. So you are immersed in that now. And it's, a, you know, I imagine if you'd done this straight from university, you'd be a very different child therapist. We'd be dealing with very different issues 
to then? Absolutely. I think having my children at the age that they are, I'm able to to use that experience. And as you say, we all know how hard it is. I think a lot of how we used to parent in it was much more community based. You know, our ancestors, we would have had a child would have had on average, well, at least four or five other adults and older teens around so that parents were always supported. In fact, the ratio was, you know, some would say it's one to 19. Whereas now when we think about it, you've got one parent generally, you know, a lot of the time um, and, and, and a number of children. So I think there's this element of remembering that we're not meant to do this alone, parenting. It's so much harder now. We, we kind of think that just because we live in this modern world that's supposedly a lot easier with technology. Actually, I think quite the reverse. It's made us a lot more isolated. Um, and it is it's very easy to use digital, you know, to use screens because very often parents themselves need a break. So I would love it if we can turn it back a little bit and start saying, well, let's support each other. And instead of using screen, we use each other to say, actually, I just need a bit of time out. There's a lot of change that can take place. Actually, for children, the the biggest benefit right now, having been through what we've been through, is the gift of our presence. And I sort of say, don't give presents as in, you know, boxed wrapped present give your presence and and again we can say well that's a bit difficult but we have to make time for our children that's the biggest thing we can do for them when I'm sat there with a child in the therapy room we have an hour together 15 minutes together one-on-one and the benefits of just that one-on-one time and I talk about this a lot with parents even just 10 minutes a day a 10 minute top up with your children whatever age they are just to connect look into each other's eyes make each other laugh give the you know that lovely oxytocin boost we get when we've made our kids laugh whatever age they are um we all need that and I think you know just to be aware of how our brains and how our children's brains are changing with the use of digital uh, technology should start waking us up to thinking this is not how we're meant to be it's just what they're exposed to as well that they can't handle you know that they're not they're not able really to cope with as well, I think is is quite frightening, isn't it? That, you know, the age that they're being exposed to things. Um, and as an individual, that can be quite, you know, as a parent, it can be quite overwhelming to even think about that, can't it? Because you're getting pressured from, parents will be pressured from their kids about, you know, well, so-and-so's got this and I want that. And what do you say to parents who are feeling that, that they're succumbing to that pressure? So, well, first of all, I think it's a big question, isn't it? Mm. It's... I would start and I do start. I've just been on holiday with my sister and she's got six kids. And wow. <laughs> yeah, the twins in there. And then, you know, she was going for the girl. She's got five boys and a girl. And I was talking to them about this. And I just said, look, when we understand, I think for teenagers especially, um, there's lots of really good documentaries out at the moment talking about how, you know, we all know that the algorithms are designed to keep us addicted and talking about dopamine rushes. And what I want teens to understand, especially, is that you're, you're almost being played. So, you know, my husband talks to our kids and he's like, you, this this will suck out your brain. You know, he sort of laughs and just says, you know, this is this sucks out your brain. And we laugh about it. But it's trying to sort of say to our children, It's not actually doing you any good. Let's think about it because it's not their responsibility. It is our responsibility in terms of what we're giving our children access to. So we should we should be able to say no. I know that's hard. I know that's hard. I speak as a working parent and as children who's, oh, you know, my so-and-so's watching this. But, you know, on holiday, you know, I would get my children reading books. And and, and if you can divert them into another 
means and it does take work on our part it does take investment but we have to do it because it's too it's too addictive it's too easy we can't really sort of expect our children to be the best masters of it because even we're not right how hard is it for us to put the phone down sometimes but I think if we come at it and I always come at parenting from a perspective of science and brain development because then a parent and we can all feel more empowered to think right what is this doing to my child's brain development if they're on a screen with this constant sort of reward that they get from the likes or the sort of what they're seeing it's wiring their brain in a certain way and when we start to see it that way as you talked about with with cigarettes or maybe whether it's alcohol we might start questioning well okay I know it's a, it's going to be tough but I need to do it and the more parents that we can do it and talk together we have to do something because it's not healthy for our children to be on screens all the time. And I'm not saying, all, you know, there's there's downtime, but it is it's particularly pernicious, I think, when you sort of got the addictive drive um, that, that comes from getting these this dopamine hit. And there's a lot of research on it now, much more than there has been. So I think, look, I, my, my whole being is never, look, as a therapist, I'm always working with parents and it's never about shame, blame, or, you know, I get it. I get how hard it is, especially if you're a single parent, you go, I just need a break. But I think when we're aware, as we are now, of the potential changes that are taking place for our children's development and as you say what they're seeing what they see cannot be unseen and then it's fracturing our relationship we're becoming more distant from our children you know if we all sat around a table rather than talking over dinner and everyone sat on a screen you know what what, what is that setting us up for in the future so there's it's, it's a really big issue and it's not and just I, kids though is it I mean I was having this conversation with somebody the other day about restaurants that actually good restaurants, you know, decent restaurants that allow a whole table to sit on their phones in, in a meal. And if I was a restaurateur, it would be rule number one of my restaurant that you only get your phone out if, you know, somebody's calling you in an emergency. You're not sitting at the table, screen, you know, scrolling at a table. It, it's just so, um, it just makes me feel so sad, actually, because you kind of walk into a restaurant and think, you're not, you're not, you're adults and you're not communicating. What chance have the kids got if you're the adults in their world, you know, to, to not be addicted to these? devices yeah and also what in what message does it give for us as if we're talking about us as adults you know if I sat here with you now and I just kept picking my phone up <laughs> you know what would you feel inside you know there's an element of rejection, rejection. yeah rejection and like how rude but you know so when we're with our children we're constantly picking up our phones and doing that what message are we giving to them so I do talk about that a lot just just for us to think how might we feel if our partner constantly was picking up their phone and looking at it that's the message that we're giving our children. I'd rather be on this device than sitting with you. Um, again, I'm mindful of saying this is not a sort of, uh, you know, a cure-all, but I would love to start seeing some changes. And as you say, maybe restaurants can start doing phone bans and screen bans mm. and they'll be forced to talk to each other and get back into that lovely rhythm because we can all do it. But I think everyone's got so, it's almost like, oh, I don't know how to play with my child anymore. I think the other thing as well that, you know, is important, it's like anything, isn't it? Foundations of a house, foundations of a relationship if you go in early with these things you you are preventing potentially problems coming down the track that are going to be a lot more difficult to deal with so the idea of saying no to a 10 year old you've got to try and think of this as a kind of a, a long-term game haven't you and your reward is coming later when you've got a great relationship with a teenager absolutely I mean that that's absolutely critical and also it's easier to then have that conversation with our 10 year old if we've started at five mm -hmm. and then at 10 we can say do you remember how we spoke to you about we can use age-appropriate language but when we work with our children and they get that we're not just being mean by saying no you can't go on it but there's a reason for it 
then that's actually can be quite bonding. And, and But then we have to follow up as well with how about we play a game instead? So then, again, there's still the investment. We've still got to put that investment in, but it will pay dividends in the future with our teens and later teens. One of the best books I read um, was called The Teenage Brain and um, it's by an American psychologist. And it explained to me, I read it when my kids were 12 going on 13, it explained to me just how the teenage brain is wired differently to a younger brain and also an adult brain that's going through this metamorphosis and and all those and the, the thing that kind of really stuck with me was how teenagers just don't evaluate risk in the same way and and so obviously they're they feel they're going to get into trouble about something so they don't tell you and then it gets worse and all those things and it really helped me understand what they were about and I could see almost these examples real life examples happening with my kids and I so I tell them about this book you know and they were like oh mum's read a book um but I think you know the idea that we know everything as parents and we don't seek out help as well should also be kind of you know banished to some kind of you know shame cupboard that the idea that you're just you know oh I've got to read a book to understand my kids that's okay it's okay to ask for help and and understand a little bit better well we all you do your research when you go off and do your job so you know why wouldn't we sort of research the most important job that we've got and I think that's right I mean I I wrote there's no such thing as naughty to explain how the brain develops and funny old thing funny enough when it gets to teenage it's almost that we go back we see a lot more of that toddler behavior Mm. because all the sex hormones are coming Mm -hmm. in and it almost the what I call the wise L but the prefrontal cortex almost gets so overwhelmed (laughs) goes back on her back going I can't cope and she's the sort of thinking rat one that sort of analyzes risk and everything whereas actually she's so overwhelmed because of all the sex hormones coming in she sort of almost goes to sleep and then you get that and also our teens are meant to healthy risk take that is what's going to propel them off into the world that's what got us out of caves and going and exploring over the next hill so it's about sort of encouraging healthy risk taking competition with sport you know the the good stuff not necessarily the more negative um aspects of risk by the way when i said that's the best book what i meant was it helped me at that point in my life i have read better books obviously i'm not <laughs> complete yeah i'm not, not <laughs> i have i'm all for any book that talks about the brain and helps you know parents in terms of um understanding because i think we also want to feel empowered, don't we? We don't want to sort of feel that we're being, you know, finger wagged at. We want to kind of go, ah, I want to have the light bulb moment for myself. That's what I found when I was doing my training and all the people I was interviewing. And I was like, oh my God, everyone needs to know this because it just makes behavior make sense and actually can take the pressure off of thinking, so my kid's not bad and I haven't done a bad job. It's just the development stage they're going through. And how can I help them in that regard, rather than seeing them as naughty or bad teens or terrible teens, actually understand they're going through quite big processes. And then we can be kinder and more compassionate in that moment, as opposed to sort of retreating into that. Yeah, locked horns. And or, you know, often you see it, don't you, with with dads and lads, it's that kind of silverback thing in the kind of, you know, who's the who's the biggest in the jungle? And you kind of, you know, have to (laughs) No, it's okay. we can. We've got room for two alphas here. It's absolutely fine. Stay with me. We'll be back after this. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love 
and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. So in, you're going through all of this period of your life, um, a massive change at the time when as a woman, we, you know, as women, we go through massive change. So you're, ha, tell me how that's been going for you. Well, it's an interesting one. I am... Um... I'll share this for the first time, given that I know that the, the guests you've had on have also done the same. But it was interesting. So relatively recently, I'm not going to get too much information, but basically I sat in front of um, brilliant gynecologist, Alan Farthing, whom people might know of. And I, and I had to go and see him. And um, <laughs> and so he was going through my history. And I don't know how many people know, but I have spoken about it before, but I really struggled to conceive. It took more than five years of trying more than five IVFs before my husband and I eventually fell pregnant naturally at 41, um, having had been told it was just literally not going to happen. And I, I'd, I'd sat with Alan. And, and so we were going through and I, he won't mind me mentioning this. Um, but so so we were going through the history and, you know, I could see and he was sort of saying, so, you know, uh, and I said, yes, I had these ovarian cysts and I have my ovary removed. And, you know, I had an AMH. My uh, my hormone level was very low. And I could see he was thinking, oh, you know, poor, you know, poor lady, you know, she's come to see me. And and then I said, and, and then at 41, I conceived naturally. And he sort of looked up. And I said, and then again, I conceived naturally at 43. And he sort of just literally, and, and I was going to see him about HRT. So in my 40s, the point of this story is that I think we both sort of sat back and laughed because in my 40s, I had not only produced two children, I'd conceived four times, I'd been pregnant four times in my 40s, uh, sadly miscarried the two, but, but you know, and then was sat there saying to him, so tell me about HRT in the same decade. So there's sort of obviously sort of not, I'm not really a, an ideal way of doing things. I'm a big advocate for uh, getting pregnant um, younger, I think, um, not that I had much choice in it, but, you know, just in terms of, so I've got this weird thing going on where I've, I've had HRT. Um, I'd quite like to get off it, actually. I, I, I don't know what the thinking is on now, but I'm I'm quite holistic in my approach to things. So I'm going to go and book in to see Alan again. <laughs> so uh, for the next one to sort of say, do I need to be on it still? What symptoms were you experiencing that you felt you needed it? What was going on? Well, actually, I had to have it because I had my second ovary removed. Right. So I, you needed I had 24 hours of, of actually being full on into that. Because I did say to him, can I get away with it? And he went, no, trust me, you will you'll need a bit of help to get through that. So, um, so yeah, so I, I didn't have much choice in it. So I had about 24 hours, I think, of experiencing what many people talk about, which was, which was pretty far out in terms of um, a massive sort of feeling of change. And now, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where I'm. I actually thought the other day I need to go and have a hormone check just to go and see how everything is. But you're feeling I, good, though. I, yeah. And I'm really quite holistic, you know, in how I approach my health. So I, I very much take a temperature on how my body feels, how I feel, trying to sort of keep as much balance as I can. You know, we all know how important sleep is now. I mean, we, we probably get very boring in our old age, don't we? Because we've sort of had to learn the hard way of <laughs> You know, I mean, I gone on the day. I mean, I, I did, you know, I've been, I'm really a great one for pulling all nighters and, you know, pretty much a workaholic when I was younger. I haven't got the energy for that anymore. So, but yeah, but I think we have to give, cut ourselves a bit of slack on that as well, don't we? Because I think I don't really want to do it 
put an all-nighter, really. I, you know, I, I quite like a late night every now and again, but um, only if I can have a lie in the next morning. But this seems like a really good time to bring in the expert today, Sarah Matthews, who is a consultant gynaecologist. And uh, we, we can put those questions that you just posed there to her, but there's also some other things I'd like to chat to her about today. So, um, hi, Sarah, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Gabby. Thank you so much for inviting me on this very interesting podcast. Well, it's a perfect place to jump in because of what Kate just said there. Because I was going to start saying to her, oh, you can stay on HRT forever. And I thought, I'm not a gynecologist. <laughs> I'll I'll hand over to Sarah, who can tell Kate just that if she wants to, I suppose. She could stay on it for a long time, couldn't she? Well, it's, it's a very individual thing. Some people um, like to take a holistic approach. And I'm very much in favour of a combined approach myself. Um, but there's a lot that diet and lifestyle can do in terms of managing menopausal symptoms. Um, and certainly, Kate, for you, yes, you went woof into the menopause immediately as soon as you came out of theatre. And Alan was quite right to put you on your HRT. I don't know how long you've been on it now, but um, obviously you didn't have a chance to go through any of the symptoms. And your HRT obviously worked very well at managing any possible symptoms that might have happened. So. Um, from my perspective, you see, I'm a Mrs. HRT forever person um, because, yes, I know that the studies are all out there and we can categorically say that there's nothing as effective for menopausal symptoms in the short term as HRT is. Longer term, there are probably some major benefits in terms of your cardiovascular health, in terms certainly of your bone health and possibly for a decreased incidence of dementia and things like uh, Parkinson's disease as well, osteoarthritis, diabetes, and certain forms of cancer. So if I put that on the table and say, right, okay, well, yes, you could stop your HRT. It's very much your own choice and could manage those potential risks of those diseases in, in many other ways that I think as we grow and get more research going now that the whole um, sort of WHI study conundrum has been lifted, I think it'll be unusual for women not to be on HRT in another 10 or 20 years. You see, I would see it as I have a thyroid problem and I wouldn't not take my thyroxine. And we've got a bit of a design fault with our ovaries uh, where they're stopping nowadays in about two-thirds of the way through your life. So you've got to live a third of your life without your hormones when every single tissue in your body has receptors for estrogen and progesterone. And we know that certainly cardiovascular disease, for example, uh, is decreased very significantly in women who take HRT. And even that was the old style HRT, which was not as safe as the new formulations with natural progesterone that we have these days. Um, and it's a case of, you know, from my perspective, it's a case of, right, if you're gonna, you know, we are gonna live hopefully for a very long time. And the aim is to live older and be well as we get older. So the chronic conditions that cripple people in their 60s, 70s and 80s are diabetes, dementia, cardiovascular disease and fractures. Um, and if we've got a very effective way to prevent those, then wow, would that not be a fantastic thing? So um, by all means, Kate, go back and see what Alan's take is on it. Um, I do, you know, if people want to come off HRT, that's absolutely fine. Some people don't like taking medicines and, and um, you know, you can deal with things 
from a lifestyle perspective, from you know, a vitamin perspective. You don't need HRT. Women will live without it, unlike my thyroxine or someone who needs insulin for their diabetes. But I think we will increasingly find that women live better on it than off it. And the other end of the spectrum, I hope that was helpful, Kate. Yes, no, I'm listening with intent. I'll tell you what made me think, because I watched um, Borgen. I don't know whether you saw that, but there was this comment about the, they, they, the lead character. She was having these sweats and everything. And, and it was her doctor that said to her, look, this is natural. Just you've got to get through it. And I thought, well, that's an interesting, you know, it was quite an interesting point to, to, to make, you know. So I'm, yeah, I'm going to sit with that. But I hear what you say. I think for me, I just don't want to, you know, have to keep remembering to put the put it on the whole time and have to keep going and get prescriptions and everything so if I can find a way where I can work it through naturally then that's always my first port of call but certainly as you say if the balance tips the other way and I start it starts you know being having a negative effect then I I don't have any objections to to staying on it I just object to keep going and having prescriptions and slathering it on my thigh every day. Well, actually, that, that was kind of I was going the other end of the spectrum, kind of early intervention with HRT is something I wanted to talk to you about today, Sarah, because I know there is a, a big school of thought, actually, that um, perimenopausal symptoms is the time really to kind of start intervening and not wait until things have kind of well, fallen off a cliff. You have to consider before I go into the pros and cons, I think we have to consider what's going on psychologically with people who start to develop sweats. It's just that oh my goodness, this is me, this is it. It's the end of my fertility, it's the end of my sexuality. And it's partly the reason why I think women haven't come out as much because they want to keep it to themselves. You know, they, they, today people, women women are in denial, I think. Or a lot of women would be in denial. And they're kind of hoping that it's just going to go away and disappear. But from an HRT perspective, we know that if you start... Um, your hormones at the right time. And for example, if I, if I told you that you've got a substantially greater bone loss, bone density loss in year one after your last period than you would have at any other time, and you can't make that bone loss back again, then if you'd started HRT around the time before your period actually stopped, that wouldn't happen. And that has a, that has a huge impact, a knock-on effect as you get older. Same thing with cardiovascular disease. We've got very good studies now that say that if you start it at the right time, don't wait, then you've got a much better effect of the HRT in reducing your cardiovascular disease. And the same, they think, might go for dementia. Now, the, the studies on dementia are a little bit mixed, but I'm going to refer to Davina's lovely program, uh, where she had those two wonderful scientists in the States who were looking at brain changes in the first year after the menopause. And they very well demonstrated that you can't reverse that even if you start HRT once the change has happened. So I think timing is crucial. You know, we're really at the tip of an iceberg with HRT in the UK and, and in fact, worldwide. Um, and if, you know, men had the menopause, it would have been sorted out 40 years ago, that classic line. Um, but I, I feel with time, we will be able to identify, you know, I think, Yes, when symptoms happen is a good trigger time. Um, it's There's usually not much point in going on HRT before you have symptoms. Um, but inevitably, people start to have symptoms, or the majority of people will start to have symptoms about two to five years before their last period. And for some women, that can be up to 10 years. And that's the trigger mm -hmm. to go to the doctor. 
for investigation. And it's also, I think these conversations and, and Davina's documentary and talking more and more about it actually is where the list of symptoms is so much greater than just sweats. And I know the thing that triggered me to go and speak to you, Sarah, was this just a mood thing. And it was like feeling that I was increasingly ratty or, you know, not very joyous, didn't find the joy in life. And and that was where I started thinking, oh, is this a symptom? You know, because at the time I just thought I was just being a bit moody and I didn't know why. And now I understand that was one of the symptoms because I didn't have those big dramatic night sweats or, um, you know, anything else that I'd seen kind of in the um, the kind of classic sitcom kind of menopausal woman, which is what we kind of grew up with, didn't we? We didn't have any positive female menopausal women around. There was nobody talking about it. So do you think in a way that HRT needs a kind of reboot, a PR exercise, a kind of an HRT 2.1 or whatever it is to, to, to kind of deliver more of a positive story about the medical benefits? Yes, yes, and super <laughs> yes. Um, but I think it needs to start with a little bit more investment by the health service in training their doctors. Um, Unfortunately, the GPs in the UK uh, have an option to learn about HRT, which is just ridiculous when you think that 50% of their patients are going to go through it and they need to know about HRT. Um, And there's there's been a lot of harm done because of the previous studies in the States. Of course, whenever it comes to something that is, I suppose, optional, um, it, it has to be as safe as possible. And, and we were, we're lacking the data still. And it's only good long-term studies that will show us that data. And I mean, Davina, you know, Mariella as well with me, you know, we did several, there's been some amazing TV programs. Meg, Meg, uh, Meg Matthews as well has done, you know, and people like yourself, Gabby, who got out there, admitted it and, and gone through what's happening to you. And it's doing things like this that really will make a difference. And, and yes, we need to reboot. Women quite often know more about HRT going to the doctor than the doctor does unfortunately. So I think it has to go back to training. It has to go back to educating, educating women, educating kids, educating the boys, uh, you know, uh, and uh, things that can happen around the menopause. And then and then work from there. But yes, it does need a reboot. Well, Sarah, you are, um, as, as I thought you would be, a, a font of knowledge and a brilliant guest. Thank you so, so much. And um, I'm everybody listening, Sarah's disturbed her holiday to talk to us. I'm going to let you get back to the uh, the pool and the sunshine and your holiday. And thank you. Keep Keep on doing the good stuff. Thank you. It is fascinating kind of how a narrative, I mean, from your news head, you know, your kind of journalistic head of kind of the years of working in television and news, you see how a kind of story can get misinterpreted or peddled out in a different way. And actually what's happening now does seem to be a retelling of the story of HRT in midlife and menopause. Yeah. And and, and isn't it wonderful? When I, I'm a huge believer in grassroots. And if we call, you know, if you, Davina, Meg, are the grassroots that can speak with a with a louder voice um, that gets heard, then I think um, all the more power for us doing it. And it does it takes that sometimes, doesn't it, just to sort of break through um, on particular, as you say, narratives and to say you don't need to be suffering. And whatever the cause, you know, it might, whether it's HRT, whether we shouldn't have to suffer in silence with anything. Um, no. So reaching out, creating that sisterhood and brotherhood, but, you know, speaking about things, whether it's mental health, whether it's physiological, you know, whatever it might be, there's something hugely heartening about mm. that. So uh, thanks for doing what you're doing on that. Road. Oh, well, not, not at all. Not at all. Now, you're obviously uh, in, a, in a fantastic place to talk about what you're doing as well, because you've got 
a, a great voice and you've got a platform. So, you know, talking about children's health. But are you missing? I mean, I'm sure you'll appear on lots of shows talking about that and the books you're writing. But are you missing anything about your old TV world? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny, actually, we were flying back from Dubai and in front of us, there's a certain type of camera crew. You can sort of all the guys are dressed and they're the, the same the, in cargo the, pants. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and all the big sort of pedal boxes and all the rest of it. And my husband um, works with uh, his company, trains journalists, and there was a CNN journalist and, you know, he'd recognised her from uh, one of the courses. And they had just come back from Afghanistan and we started talking and my Mike looked at me and he just said, because I covered Afghanistan, I was in Iraq as well. And he looked at me and he just said, how do you feel? You know, just sort of seeing them coming back. And, and I said, oh, I couldn't. I just, you know, it just, it, it feels, to, I think, that, I don't know whether it's the timing. Um, and we all feel it, you know, later that there's a certain time for things. And I've always followed my heart and I found joy in so much of television. I've I've loved my career. I've done so many different things and been really fulfilled, but this is the right time. I think what would be for me, and I'm not ready yet because I'm so immersed in my clinical work now and my family. Um, I actually told my agent recently I'm off work for the foreseeable um, because of that. I just wanted to find that balance and to focus on my clients. But at some point um, next year, I would love to do you know, to combine the two, because you can have the journalism, mm. the broadcasting to talk more about children's mental health and empowering. and, and Well, I'm sure you would front a, a brilliant documentary on the topic as well, because yeah. I think that's a way of really kind of something that can sit, whether it's on an iPlayer or whatever, can sit for a long time and people can go back to as a source of knowledge and um, and as an educational piece, really. Yeah, so that, cool. that would be a, a lovely sort of, you know, full, uh, you know, sort of mm. full circle, as it were. But for the time being, no, I, I can honestly hand on heart. I'm, I'm where I'm meant to be. I'm loving it. And um, and just seeing the work firsthand and, and, and what it can do. So it's, yeah, it's uh, it feels right, very right. Uh, well, uh, your your happiness and joy coming through the screen at me there is it seems like a really lovely place to end the conversation because you have obviously made a very good choice and you'll be very inspiring, I'm sure, to a lot of people listening who are thinking of making those choices as well, Kate. So um, thank you so, so much for your time and, and also for what you're doing. I'm sure you're going to write brilliantly on the topic as well. Thank you very much. It's good to see you. Really good to see you. Thank you so much to Kate Silverton, who I think you'll agree is a very inspiring woman. And maybe you're listening to that and you're thinking, I really want to do it. I want to go for it. So hopefully she might have given you that little kick that you need to do something a bit different in midlife. And thank you to Dr. Sarah Matthews as well, who is a quite brilliant woman. She's certainly taught me a lot about my body in the last few years. And I think she is one of a a growing force of really brilliant, bright, intelligent doctors, physicians and learned uh, people who are pushing the menopause up the agenda and helping to create change in that area as well. And thank you to Rethink Audio for producing and to you for listening, of course. I'll see you next time. Have a great week. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, 
a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.